0: A number of years ago, uh, Susan and I and the kids, we had the privilege of attending this wedding. I had the privilege of officiating it and and attending this uh, reception for a friend of ours that was Indian. So it was a full-blown Indian reception. And most of his family had flown over from India. They'd never seen um, a ceremony like a traditional North American wedding ceremony, only on television. They'd never they'd never uh been at one witnessed one so for them this was uh just an incredible experience and as uh, his bride was walking down the aisle I remember standing at the front and and uh probably about 15 to 20 of his relatives got up out of their seats and rushed to the front and, and stood at, uh at the in front of me and were taking photos of her and uh so we had to kind of get them to all sit back down they just never experienced anything like this it was amazing They were so excited. We get to the reception. It's probably, you know, Susan and I always joke, we're like, it was like this, just this incredible uh, experience where the speeches, speeches, there was only one speech actually. It was about 10 seconds long. Uh, This gentleman got up and he said, here's where the food is, here's where the washrooms are. And then there was this blast of music. I remember the last thing he said. He just said, everybody, he just said, everybody party. Boom, the music starts, the smoke starts. Uh, My friend comes in. And he's being held high above all of the rest of us with his new bride, like kings and, like a king and a queen. And they're carried to the head table, which was probably about six feet tall. And they sat there and they looked down on all of us commoners as they prepared to eat their meal. And then um, women came in and they were wearing these gorgeous sores and they, they started dancing this beautiful choreographed dance. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was just it was incredible. And it was loud. It was so loud they were giving out earplugs And you could barely hear yourself. It was so loud. And there was just food and dancing and laughter into the night. And as we got into the wee hours of the morning, you'd look around, and there were all these kids asleep at the tables, just totally totally passed out, you know, in these uncomfortable positions as children can, because they're young and they're made of rubber and magic, so they can fall asleep in positions that we can't. And uh, it was quite a sight. Only children can sleep in commotion. Only children can sleep in conditions where you should not be able to sleep. You should not have any peace. There is n- this is not a situation conducive to sleeping. Today's text is Psalm chapter 4. As we go through this summer in the Psalms, this morning I'm going to read Psalm 4, because Psalm 4 is a picture of the children of God sleeping when they have no business being able to sleep. Peace when there's nothing going on that says they should be able to have peace. It is a hopeful image. It is a powerful image. And as we go to this text this morning, I pray that God ministers uh, hope and strength and peace to your heart. Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. This is a psalm about recognizing that there are things in all of our lives that if we meditated on them, like if we really dwelled on them, they would give us insomnia in the soul. And this is a psalm that calls us to remember the God of grace who saved our soul. And to turn to the Lord of rest, who gives peace and rest and strengthens our soul. As Kids, as you look down at your notes this morning, you're going to notice that... There There's some blanks in there, and it, and it talks about how turning to this Lord of rest and strengthening rest, and the rest is going to be a huge theme today. And I just used the word insomnia, and some of you kids might be wondering, what is insomnia? Well, it's, it can be a very serious condition, but it's a condition where, it, essentially, you can't sleep. You're awake, restless. Either there's something physiologically going on and your body cannot rest or there's something psychologically on, your, your mind is on a loop and you cannot rest or your, your, or your heart, your, um, your, um, th- th- there's a worry going on deep in the soul and so there's an anxiousness and you can't rest. It, insomnia it just causes us to be in this state of turmoil. If you've ever had a restless night, which probably all of us have, uh, it's 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 like torture. You want to sleep, but you can't sleep. You wish you could sleep. You know you you, you know you dream about sleeping, but you're not dreaming. And, you know you just it's it's difficult. It's very hard. Now you kids probably haven't experienced that, likely, but you've probably experienced something where your parents will say to you, "You got calm, calm down, calm down. You're overtired." Has anybody ever been told they're overtired? You're overtired because when a child gets overtired, right? everything's at level nine and so the parents are like okay calm down here you know calm down little you know little amanda and little amanda's like get away from me right because of little amanda is overtired and when when you're overtired this is what it's like we've got a lot of new moms at redeemer here lots of babies we've got baby parking at the back with all of the baby carriers in a line back there right a lot of babies here when the baby gets overtired it's terrible because they stiffen out like a board, right? And you're trying to, it's like trying to cuddle a two-by-six, you know? And you're just like, if I could just get you to contort yourself to be That's what happens. This is, a, that's how this psalm starts. That's the image you have to have in your mind of David. He's crying out. This psalm sa- starts out sounding like the stress-inducing wail of a baby's cry. But then it ends sounding like, and soothing calm of an infant that's finally come to rest and has plopped their head down on their shoulder of their father and has fallen asleep and their father is the king. That's, the psalm goes from that to that. And so some uh, Old Testament historian scholars attribute this psalm to being written <clears throat> around the time when David's, one of David's sons, Absalom, wanted the throne and was going around and turning the hearts of people against his father. So the picture is, you've got, you've got massive relational tension, you've got massive corporate tension, you've got everything is kind of at code red, and you have, a, you have the hearts of people turning away from the king. And as the hearts of people are turning away from the king, there's this great anxiety, and David is, David is crying out because he's being slandered by his own son. That's why in verse 2 it reads, oh oh men, how long will my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love these vain words, seek after lies? It's slander. Uh, It could also be faithfully translated delusion. You know, how long will you believe in these delusions uh, about me? Right? Think about how much anxiety has been caused in your life when people uh, are, you know, people are talking about you, saying things about you, perhaps slandering you. You know, there's a, there's a, There's a cultural conversation in the office about you. You catch wind of it, or you're not sure, and you're not. You know the kind of anxiety that creates? Right? You have a meeting. Okay, everybody, good meeting. You dismiss everybody from the meeting, everybody leaves. But you've kind of got a sense, or you've heard rumblings that the moment those meetings are over, people are speaking against the quote unquote king. You get this. Like, you can put yourself in David's shoes of what that's like. You know what it's like to lay in bed at night and worry about what family or friends, uh, you know, you had an exchange, the exchange went poorly. That Relationships are strained. People who used to be for you are now against you. You're worried about what they're thinking or what they're seeing or what they're texting or what they're tweeting. You know, you're worried about it. We know what this is like. We've, we've all experienced this. And it's no small thing. Uh, the ninth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And all the commandments are a gift that guides us because, of course, Jesus already fulfilled them for us. And because Christ has fulfilled the commandments perfectly, we rest in a place of now relating to those commandments as something that are fulfilled in Christ and now guide us. So we don't keep the Ten Commandments so that at the end of our life, God says, you're in. We're already in because of Jesus. We have a different relationship with the law. We keep it because it guides us into flourishing. We keep it because we want to now imitate the Savior of grace who has saved us in grace apart from all our works. That's why we do them. And the Ninth Commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is a gift because it protects a person's dignity. It it protects relationship, you know, unity. And it protects societal flourishing. If, you're slan- if somebody slanders you or you slander somebody, you take away the reputation, you take away their dignity, you take away their ability to work. You take- this is what happened. In the ancient world, if you slandered somebody, they're like, okay, boycott his little place and the guy can't feed his family. And right, That's the degree that this went to. So David is now experiencing this slander. You and I have experienced the unrest that comes with, with uh, slander or that comes with feeling that like there's people against us. This is to protect us from uh, societal ruin. It can, if we dwell on it, all of us have had relationships that are strained and stressful. All of us have them now, and if we're honest. There is some relationship in our life that's strained and stressful. And so if we, if we dwell on it, we will find ourselves, like the beginning of the psalm, like David, crying out for, <laughs> crying out for justice and, and saying, oh, how long are you going to believe this delusion about me and we're not going to be able to sleep? And God in his great grace, this is fulfilled in Christ, and we're going to get to him in, the, in a minute, which is the focal point of this, but I just want you to see how this narrative flows, because the grace of God for you has implications. God saved you from all your sin in Christ, but the implications of that grace are great rest that is now available for your soul. Rest that would not be available otherwise. See, because if you're not a child of God, if there is no God, that that means your God. So if your identity isn't something that's received, your identity has to be achieved, which means there's no rest for the wicked, because you've got to go out and garner it. And the moment that somebody is, the moment that there's relational tension, that is a direct threat to your identity. That is a direct threat to your peace. It's going to give you insomnia in the soul. And, and so it has a way of, of doing this to us. And so when you look at verse 1, David talks to God. Oh God! When you look at verse 2, David talks to men. That's a... That's pretty instructive. That's a good pattern. That's a picture. Kids, if you look down at your notes, you're going to find that it says there that's some good wisdom there. David talks to God first, and then in his next breath, he's talking to men. See, if we develop a a pattern and a way of continually going to our God, that's going to guide us and give us much more wisdom in terms of going to people. Now we relate, relate to them. David says, you know, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Well, that phrase there, O God of my righteousness... For those of you who may be new to church or new to the scriptures, you think, oh, that's a, that sounds like a good churchy, churchy phrase, a good churchy thing to say. Oh, God of my righteousness. What does that even mean? Here's what it means. The only reason that David can call God the God of his righteousness is that God has graciously saved David. David's trust is in God. The only reason we can say God of my righteousness is because through Jesus Christ, God has saved us. So if you were to study the scriptures and say, what does God of my righteousness really mean? Here's what you discover. God is the author of your righteousness. Because everybody is born in a state of unrighteousness. Everybody. I don't care, you know, who you are and how great of a person you think you happen to be. You would not stand in a line that says, I'm perfect. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're a person of non-faith, if if there was a line that said people who are perfectly loving and perfectly pure and perfectly you, you know uh, just stand here if you're perfect it doesn't matter what your worldview is you're not going to stand in that line what the scriptures teach is all of us are born in a state of unrighteousness needing God's grace <clears throat> because there's not a sliding scale of morality that gets us into heaven it's Christ alone it's Jesus was the only one who was righteous so we have to put all our chips on him trust in him that his that he was enough so because he was enough And because, church, you've placed your faith in Christ, that means God is the author of your righteousness. God is the maintainer of your righteousness. God is the judge who one day after we're all dead appearing before the judgment seat is going to look at us and call us righteous. Even though we're not, in and of ourselves, we are not righteous. We're standing in righteousness. We're united to Christ who was righteous. God's going to look at you and he's say, righteous. And then he's going to reward you for the righteousness he gave you. That's the gospel. You and I aren't earning it. Every other religion on planet Earth has a form of earning it righteousness. So the God says, okay, you did enough, you're in. Christian faith says, no. Christ was enough, and you're now united to him. So David calls out, O God of my righteousness, which is a way of saying, the one who authored my righteousness, the one who's maintaining my righteousness, the one who at the end of time is going to look at me and say, you're righteous, even though I'm not, and then he's going to reward me for the righteousness he gave me, O God, he's turning to him. See, that reframes that level of security and a sense of, the sense of identity that that gives you, the sense of confidence that that gives you, and when I say confident, I don't mean arrogance, I mean humble confidence that you're, you're standing before God righteous, that reframes the way you relate to stressful, stressful times, times when you should not be able to sleep, times when relationships are, are strained and stressed. And so this is what David does here. Um, Spurgeon said it this way. Well, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in the 18th century. He says this, he says, Here in his wisdom, let us imitate David and always take our case, not to the petty courts of human opinion, but to to the high court and the high bench of God the king. And that's what you see David doing here. He's going to God on it so he can get peace. Kids, if you look back down in your notes, you're going to notice that it says this. You see, David had a habit of looking back on God's faithfulness in the past as his basis for trusting God's faithfulness in the present. So when you are going through trial, hardship, stress, anxiety... And you are wondering, on what basis can I trust God here? You have to go to his faithfulness in the past. And not just the, uh, not just the subjective past of your own personal experience, though that is incredibly helpful, to look back on your life and think about the times when God has been faithful to you. But I mean to go back to the objective past of God's faithfulness as to what he has done for you and I in human history in 33 A.D. at the cross of Christ. The reason why it's important for us to go back and pin ourselves to that is because the scriptures teach us this they teach us in Romans 8 if God did not withhold his own son but instead gave him up as a sacrifice for us all will he not more richly give us all things that's Romans chapter 8 that's what it says if God didn't withhold Jesus he won't withhold what you need not what you think you need what you need He's wise and loving and gracious, which means there's great rest for the children of God in times of trial and times of anxiety because God is not in the business of withholding. God is not a withholder. The cross says he holds back nothing, which means everything that we need he graciously gives and everything that we don't have that we think we need, but we don't have it, obviously we don't need it because God in his wisdom would have given it to us. Therefore, there is rest in those times. To be like, oh God, even in this, you have a grace and a strength and a hope for me. Even in this. And that begins to cure your heart of insomnia. Now, I've had a lot of insomnia in my soul because I'm like trying so hard to get God to see my point of view. You know? Like I will lay in bed at night, it's like trying to get through to a. It's like trying to get to, through to a child. It's like I'm looking at God, going, Linda, 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 no, Linda, 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 honey, honey, Linda, and God's like, no, you don't understand how this arrangement works. I, I am God, and I love you, and I care for you, and I've got you. So David goes to God's faithfulness in the past as his basis for God's faithfulness in the present. Life is hard, but God is good. And so the immediate context of the psalm is that these people are believing vain words, delusions about the king. So they turn away from the king. Well, King David is foreshadowing King Jesus, who, of course, had all of us believe false things about the king and vain delusions about the king. And then they crucified the king and they turned away from the king. And all of us are born into a condition of being turned away from the king. But at the cross, Christ the King forgave you and I, forgave us for believing the vain words. How long will you believe these vain words? How long will you believe these false imaginations about me? Jesus Christ goes to the cross, forgives us for all of the vain delusion of looking for little mini messiahs and tiny gods and little shiny, you know, doodads to put all of our hope in and find all of our hope in. And Jesus forgives us of all that and draws us to himself in great grace so that we turn back to Christ the King. So, the good news for you and I, church, is that if Christ is our king, then we have this gift of repentance of, for crowning little things as king. <clears throat> if I crown relationships and people as king, I'm going to have insomnia in my soul every single time one of those people moves where I don't want them to move. And I don't know about you, but I love people to move around where I, <laughs> where I would prefer they move. And relate the way I prefer they relate, and talk the way I prefer they talk, and think the way I prefer they, th- they think. I mean, I know I'm not the only control freak in here who happens to think that life would work a lot better if everybody just related to things the way that I would. I can't be the only one in here that, that, that struggles with that. And so the gift of grace here is, listen, you can't crown these other things king. You've got to turn to the king, and that's where you find this great, uh, you find this great rest. And so we get this great wisdom in verse 4 it starts to guide us now how do we enjoy this rest it says be angry notice it says don't be angry yeah that would be impossible the scripture says be angry and do not sin what in the world does that mean i'll get to that in a second it says be angry and don't sin ponder in your own hearts and be silent trust in the lord because when trials come in verse 6 we're going to say who's going to show us some good in other words i can't catch a break that's verse 6 Verse 6 is, I can't catch a break. Who's ever said that in life? I can't catch a break. The universe is against me. God! Okay, so dial it back. If that's, if that's how this whole thing starts, dial it back. He says, listen, um, be angry and don't sin. In other words, when you suffer, be angry at injustice without retaliating and becoming unjust. When you are oppressed be angry at the oppression without becoming vengeful and becoming an oppressor when somebody spitefully speaks against you be angry at the spite without becoming a spiteful person in other words be angry and do not sin is being angry is being appropriately angry at the right things and the do not sin is don't become the object of your anger which seems to be the human problem. I mean, I know that that's my problem. I can, get, I can become such a Pharisee about Pharisees, right? Oh, those people. They don't get it. I mean, I get it. But they don't get it. How dare, How dare she say that about me? How dare she? You know what? She has no business saying that. Because she, da da, 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 da I have become the object of my hatred. The great irony of our culture... Hey, let's all coexist. Let's be tolerant. Uh, well, that sounds amazing. If we, if it was loving, the problem is, it's like, okay, so here's what I think, and I need you to celebrate it. Oh, I disagree. What? How dare you disagree? You, ha- you must think like I think, believe like I believe, and agree with all of my, all of my things. I mean, everything that I have determined is the way that the universe should be. You must agree with it. And if you don't, you're a bigot. But. But wait a minute, but then fundamentally that means you disagree with me, so how are you not a bigot? No, 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 no! I'm not a bigot. I'm tolerant. You're the bigot. This is the problem with culture. This is the, this is the rage machine of Twitter. We, be, we, we, we can hate the right things, but then we become the, objects, the very objects of our hatred. So the, the scripture says, now hold on a minute. Jesus Christ recalibrates the heart into like, oh, he actually, he's the only one that's good and just. And he saved me in his great grace. Oh God, would you melt my heart so that I can be angry at sin without, without becoming the object of, of, of my hatred. You see, if we believe in God, as the God of the Bible, then we believe in divine mercy for sin and we also believe in divine judgment for sin. That's the cross. The cross is where divine judgment and divine mercy intersect. Okay, we believe in both of those things. If you don't believe in divine judgment, you will be a vengeful person constantly looking for opportunities to exact your judgment. That's the, this is the text. Be angry and don't sin. But, you see, God was angry at things all the time in the Old Testament. People don't understand it because the people that rage against God in the Old Testament are not theologians. They're people that understand the Bible kind of vaguely at a surface level or they read it at a surface level and they say, well, the God of the Old Testament is, you know, this big, horrible ogre. No, 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 no. Let me give you an analogy. It's not going to be great, but let me just give it to you. You're in your house and you hear smashing and banging in the house next to you. You realize your neighbor is beating his wife. And your response to that is to do nothing. The God of the Old Testament hears his neighbor beating his wife, knocks on the door and says, stop beating your wife. It's wrong. Stop beating your wife. Please, please stop this. And the God of the Old Testament is going after, after, constantly, for generations. With the patience you and I don't have, of the person saying, Not only do I wanna beat my wife, I want to also abuse my children in ways that I'm not gonna say this morning because there's children in here. That, that was all happening. God constantly reaching out for them to turn from their ways, and they don't turn from their ways. God goes, We gotta we have to judge this. That's the God of the Old Testament. You see. Judgment is not the opposite of love. If you remove judgment, you don't remove love. I mean, sorry, you don't erase love. People are like, oh, get rid of this God of judgment, and then he's more loving. What, are you kidding me? You let your neighbor beat their wife, and you're loving now? You're a loving person? No. Judgment is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. Listening to somebody beat their wife, and then they're like, you know, I'm not going to do anything about this. That, that's a hateful person. That's hating the woman. That's hating her, doing nothing. And so here in this text, it says, be angry and don't sin. We have a God who is angry and he never sinned. He was, he, we have a God who was angry and, and not angry and bloodthirsty. He came himself in Jesus Christ. He didn't pour it out on, on anybody else. He poured it out on himself. This is, of, this is the God that we serve. This God of great justice and this great God of great judgment and divine mercy. Mercy is radical because the cross was God's way of putting an end to sin and death without putting an end to us. And when we reflect on that, that enables us to be people who can be angry and not sin. Because as long as you don't think that there's a, there's a God who's got divine mercy for you, because you would actually deserve judgment too, that's the whole point of the Bible, is that we don't get to look at people out in the world and go, oh, they're so terrible, they deserve judgment. God should strike them with lightning bolts. No, 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 no. You and I deserve lightning bolts. But the reason we don't get the lightning bolts, the reason we get the mercy, not the justice, is because of the cross, is because of Christ, is because he was perfect when we are not. This is the grace that we celebrate. So the way we become angry and not sinning is thinking about that. And that recalibrates the way that we relate to those who have wronged us. And I'm not talking about pacifism where we, don't, where we absolutely don't look for justice. No, we look for justice. But that's different than sinning. That's, become, that's different than becoming the, the object of our own, of our own hatred. So we worship a God who hates what's unjust. He'll punish the unjust. But at the same time, he came and died for the unjust. This is the radicality of the cross. So church, not only have you been forgiven by the grace of God, but you're empowered to be angry without having your soul eroded by bitterness. By the spirit of God. This is the good news of the gospel for you. So kids, if you look down in your notes again, there's a phrase there and it says this. When the Bible talks about God giving you peace. Peace is not a passive and active state. Peace is a very powerful active force. And you see that peace in verse 7. Because we get some insight on how powerful the peace is. David says, You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grace abound. In other words, David doesn't say, I have joy in my heart because I'm prospering. The whole point of this psalm is he's not prospering. David says, David says, I have peace in my heart while all my enemies are prospering. That is a level of peace that I want. That is a level of trust and rest in God that I want, that I want my children to have. Nothing is going well. I am not prospering. Everybody who I think shouldn't be prospering is prospering. And I have joy in my heart. That's verse 7. That's impossible without the, without the grace of Jesus Christ in resting in, in God. It's impossible. It's amazing. And this is what he says. Because otherwise, if we can't have joy and rest in our heart when we're not prospering, we're going to have faith that's like paper mache that dissolves in the reign of adversity. And David is turning to God, and we can look at this and think on the gospel and turn to God and realize there's a powerful peace that's available to us in you know, the gift of prayer and in turning to God and resting. And so then you come to verse 8. And in verse 8, this closes. And it goes from this cry when everybody is against him and people are believing lies about him, and nothing in his life is good and nothing in his life is prosperous. And he trusts in God and he returns back to God and he thinks on God's faithfulness. And you get to verse 8 and it closes and he says, In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is not a person in this room that does not need that. There's not a person who walked in here and says, you know, I shouldn't have gone to church today because the whole sermon was about how when everything is on code red, I sleep like a baby. And you know what? I always think of like a baby and I have no anxiety and stress in my life and I didn't need that. There's not a person in here, all of us, to look at this and say, wow, I will dwell and lie down and sleep for you alone, God, make me dwell in safety. It is amazing. As David, King David anticipates King Jesus, King David is lying down and sleeping. We have King Jesus in the New Testament who also had a habit of lying down and sleeping when everything was storming. King David, he's just foreshadowing King Jesus. King David had all his people rise up against him and King Jesus had all his people rise up against him. King Jesus had his people rise up against him and reject him and crucify him. King, the suffering of King Jesus culminated in the sleep of death so that you and I could enjoy the sleep of peace. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I could rest knowing that our life is in the hand of God. That's what we get from the end of this psalm. The grace of God works in our hearts and it makes us like those children at that wedding reception, able to find rest in an environment that is not conducive to rest. His grace is sufficient for you, church. His grace is made perfect in your weakness. And like David... In peace, you will both lie down and sleep because you have Christ in your chaos. Let's pray.